Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. And action. Welcome everyone to the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today we will be looking at the 1999 David Fincher classic, Fight Club. With me are Ken. This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. And Ted. Eric, sticking feathers up your butt doesn't make you a chicken. What I've been told, Ted. It doesn't and I'm listen. A, and I never listen. And I'm, of course, Eric. You are not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Who knows? We are looking at Fight Club. Ted, give us the details of this one. Fight Club was directed by David Fincher with a screenplay by Jim Ools, but it also had uncredited work on the screenplay by Cameron Crowe, Andrew Kevin Walker, director David Fincher, and both actors Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. Fight Club is based off of the novel Fight Club by Chuck Pahalnik. It has a running time of 139 minutes. It was released October 15th, 1999. It had a budget of $65 million and a box office gross of $101.2 million. Fight Club stars Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden, Edward Norton as the narrator, Helena Bonham Carter as Marla Singer, Meatloaf as Robert Paulson, Jared Leto as Angel Face, Holt McElnaney as the mechanic, and Zach Grenier as Richard Chesler, the narrator's boss. And the reason I tossed Holt McCallney in there, if anybody knows the brilliant Netflix series Mindhunter, he plays Tetch from the FBI. And he's uh, incredible in that. He's a really good actor. Well, what did the critics say about this one? On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critic score of a certified fresh 79%. But it has an audience score of 96%. We'll start with the negative critics. One of the negative critics is Bob Thomas from the Associated Press. He said, perhaps it is postmodern filmmaking. In any case, Fight Club remains the ugliest, most inhuman film since Natural Born Killers. Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times had this to say, If it had all continued in the vein explored in the first act, it might have become a great film, but the second act is pandering, and the third act is just trickery. But on the positive side, we have Peter Travers from Rolling Stone. He said, It's about being young, male, and powerless against the pacifying drug of consumerism. It's about solitude, despair, and bottled-up rage. It's about daring to imagine the disenfranchised reducing the world to rubble and starting over. And another person that we've talked about before, Janet Maislin from the New York Times, she said, The director of Seven and the Game, for the first time, finds subject matter audacious enough to suit his lightning-fast visual sophistication and puts that style to stunningly effective use. Some pretty interesting reviews there. Yeah. Either the critics really liked this, or they really didn't. There was no, like, I'm kind of lukewarm on this movie. You love it or you just don't get it, one of those kind of things? Right. Okay. 
Well, Ken, I, I wish you all the luck in the world to try and to tell us the plot of this movie. It's all over the place, so take it away. Well, um, to start off, you're not supposed to talk about it, so just stop. That's right. The first full right. fight club. Podcast okay, is over. Let's move Thank on. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. We'll just talk about the movie up until they give the rules, right? Because before that, you don't know about them. 15, exactly. 20 minutes into the movie, right? Yeah. The narrator, an automobile recall specialist, is unfulfilled by his job and possessions and suffers from chronic insomnia. To cure this, he attends support groups, posing as a sufferer of diseases. His bliss is disturbed when another imposter, Marla Singer, begins attending the same groups. The two agree to split which groups they attend. On a flight home from a business trip, the narrator meets soap salesman Tyler Durden. The narrator returns home to find his apartment and all his belongings have been destroyed by... An explosion. Kind of go boom. Disheartened by the loss of his material goods, he calls Tyler and they meet at a bar. Tyler tells him that he's trapped by consumerism. In the parking lot, he asks the narrator to hit him and they have a fist fight. They find the experience cathartic and agree to do it again. The narrator moves into Tyler's home, a large boarded up house in an industrial area. They have further fights outside the bar, which attract growing crowds of men. The fight moves to the bar's basement, which the men form Fight Club. Marla overdoses on pills and telephones the narrator for help, but he ignores her and abandons the conversation without hanging up. Tyler picks up the call and goes to her apartment to save her. They begin a sexual relationship, much to the narrator's irritation. Tyler warns the narrator never to talk to Marla about him. The narrator blackmails his boss for some company assets to support Fight Club and quits his job. More new members joined Fight Club, including Bob Polson, a man with testicular cancer whom the narrator has previously met at one of his support groups. Tyler then recruits men from the Fight Club into Project Mayhem without the narrator's involvement. The group engages in subversion acts of vandalism. After the narrator complains that Tyler has excluded him, Tyler reveals that he was the one who caused the explosion at the narrator's condo. Tyler disappears one night when Paulson is killed by the police fleeing from a sabotage operation. The narrator tries to halt the project. He follows a paper trail to cities Tyler has visited, discovering Project Mayhem has spread throughout the country. In one city, a project member addresses the narrator as Mr. Durden. Confused, the narrator calls Marla and discovers that she also believes that he is Tyler. Tyler appears in his hotel room with a different haircut and clothing, and reveals that they are the same person. The narrator blacks out, and when he returns to the house, he uncovers Tyler's plans to erase death by destroying buildings that contain credit card records. He apologizes to Marla and warns her that she's in danger, but she is tired of his behavior and refuses to listen. He tries to warn the police, but some of the officers are members of the project. The narrator escapes the police station in his boxers. He attempts to disarm the explosives in one building, but Tyler stops him. With Tyler holding him at gunpoint on the top floor, the narrator realizes that the gun is really in his hands since Tyler and him are the same person. He fires it into his own mouth, shooting through his cheek. Tyler seems to die, and the narrator ceases mentally to protect him. Project Mayhem members bring a kidnapped Marla to the building, and the narrator and Marla reconcile and hold hands as they watch the explosives detonate, collapsing the buildings in front of them. The end. Well done. 
Now we can't talk about it. Now we can't talk about it anymore. Nope, that was it. Yep. Well, let's talk about the first time we saw the movie. How about that? Ken? I'd seen it probably about eight or nine years ago. To be honest, at that particular time, I wasn't too impressed with the movie, so this is the first time that I've seen it since then. Wow, that's kind of funny. It's about the time frame I saw it, like eight or nine years ago. One of my friends at work was talking about it, and uh, I went out and I bought a used copy of it, and I watched it. Like you. He's not supposed to talk about it. What the heck, dude? Come on, come on. I didn't say it. I said I got a copy of the movie. No, you said your friend told you about it. That's wrong. Oh, yeah. And his eye was all black. Yeah, he looked horrible. I didn't realize it until then. And then he hit me. No. I bought a copy of it. I saw it and um, still have it. And I've seen it once and pushing two, three times after that. It's a, a unique, different movie. I thought I owned it. And I was looking all over for it, and then I looked at my movie database that I keep track of, and yeah. nope, I don't have it. <laughs> ah. Lucky me. Now, lucky you. How about you, uh, Ted? Uh, I saw this in the movie theater. First run, huh? Yeah, first run in college. Most likely it was on a date with my girlfriend, who's now my movie. wife. And plus, this would have been a movie at this point in time that I would have been extremely interested in, because I loved Seven. And so I followed every, pretty much everything that David Fincher did. And this is like right around the time that the internet sort of like the rumor mill on the internet as far as movies go kind of was exploding. So you could follow your favorite director and, and our actors and see what they were, what was in the coming down the pike for them. I really liked Edward Norton. I still like Edward Norton. And of course, I like Brad Pitt too. I mean, he's... Yeah, there are a lot of people out there that aren't real fond of Ed Norton. Yeah, I know. Not anymore. They, they, Yeah, there's a lot of people that uh, he's worked with that aren't a real big fan of Edward Norton, too. But I like his work. I especially liked his work in uh, American History X, and that's why I would have been following him. That, and I love Rounders, too. And Primal Fear. And Primal Fear, of course, yeah. Yeah, he's incredible in Rounders. That's just a great flick. I would say Uh, this about the rumor mill, though. The rumor mill is why I didn't watch this movie right away, because people were telling about the ending yeah you know and so well, that kind of ruined it for me and i didn't feel like watching a movie that i already knew the yeah. ending to. it's uh it's quite unfortunate it's interesting that you just bring that up right now because i didn't have the ending ruined for me but as i was doing research for the movie i don't know what would have possessed somebody to do this but i guess rosie o'donnell when she had her talk show i guess she went and saw an early screening of this movie like earlier in the week before it was released i don't like the way it's gonna end and then went on her talk show and her talk show at that time was like super popular like almost Mm -hmm. like ellen level popular and she ruined the entire ending of the movie I just don't know what would possess somebody, and she, and she was imploring people not to go see it because she didn't like it so much and whatever. Brad Pitt, in the commentary on the Blu-ray track, said that that is unforgivable. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. It is unforgivable. You should have invited her to Fight Club. Yeah, I don't know what would possess somebody to think that that's okay to do that. Back then, being obnoxious was kind of her thing so i i'm not surprised that she did that but she's part of the industry i don't get why you would sabotage so i take it she didn't have uh, she didn't have uh brad pitt or norton on on her show probably not no i would think not it's a dick thing to do one of the big things about this movie is giving away the twist ending right you would think of her being an actor 
that she would respect that. Actually, by the time she became a talk show host, I thought she had kind of calmed down because when she was a VH1 VJ, oh, goodness gracious, was she obnoxious as all yeah. get out. And it was purposely done. That was her shtick, to be annoying. Anybody should be in a celebrity fight club. I think it should be Rosie O'Donnell. After I saw this movie, I've owned it on VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray. Is it on 4K? I... No, it's not in 4K yet. Fin- okay. None of Fincher's stuff hmm. is in 4K yet. Really? Okay. I Gone Girl might be. I watch this movie maybe once a year. Were you one of those college people that had the poster on, on their wall? No, but I know people who did. Yeah. <laughs> so... I didn't live in the dorms, but I know a lot of people who lived in the dorms. And everybody had a Fight Club poster. Everybody had a Reservoir Dogs poster. A lot of people had a Pulp Fiction poster. What a great time um, to be alive. There was no such thing as wallpaper. It just was just posters. Pretty much. In a lot of guys' dorms, you know. There's other posters. Michael Jordan was big. Cindy Crawford. So, yeah. Dealer and Hart Jr. Yeah, it's a little Brent, bit before yeah, Brian Stimpy. Take us into the beginning of this one, uh, Ted. It's got a, a very interesting uh, beginning. kind of sets you up a little bit. One of the things that starts this off that makes it so captivating is we deal primarily with a narrator. We never truly find out what his name is, but we know that the narrator is played by Edward Norton, and he's our main source of information through the movie. And we had talked before in, like, Taxi Driver about the unreliable narrator because due to mental illness or whatever. And we're given this character of the narrator that he's not mentally stable because of the fact he has to go to support groups to be able to feel emotion, which is kind of disturbing if you think about it. And he has to go there to feel things. It's a fascinating look at that part. I mean, we really don't get his mental illness until later on in the movie. The way Edward Norton and David Fincher set the stage here with the character, they make you feel comfortable with him. And then they kind of just, they play with that, that emotion. Because you you have to, you feel connected to him because he's the only conduit into the story. It's really interesting when you find out that he might not be reliable. A very ingenious Oh, the unreliable narrator takes place? I think it's amazing. I think another movie that really plays off this as well in modern times is the movie The Joker. That's another movie that plays similarly off of Fight Club in a lot of different aspects because you don't really know what's real and what's not. And I love the feeling that you get about halfway through the movie when you do kind of realize that there's something really seriously bad going on in this person's mind. It makes you question everything that's happening. I think it's genius. The flashback scenes are really what makes the movie for me when you're going midway towards the end there where he's having the conversation, obviously, with Brad Pitt. And he's starting to rethink everything in his mind. And they're showing some of the scenes in reverse and showing him as the Tyler right. uh, Durden character. It's, it's, and you're like, oh, yeah, I see it now. What if his real name is Tyler? It seems like he doesn't really even know who he is, you know, even by this particular point. You're yeah. right. It's never come out. Maybe, I mean... For all we know, maybe his name is Tyler. His boss never calls him by his first name. Nope. Nobody Nobody does. does. When he gives his phone number to Marla, he doesn't put down a name. Right. It goes by all these different names, so maybe Tyler is really his real name. 
What I do like about the setup of the character is I think they try to make the character into your average Joe. Kind of like how we can all relate into jobs that we've had at times in our life that are just unfulfilling. You're stressed out by them. There's a lot of relatable things with the character at first that we see here. What bugs me to death here is him going to the doctor and telling the doctor that he passes out and wakes up in other situations, other areas. And the doctor goes, just go get some natural sleep. I'm sorry, no doctor would allow this to continue to happen. But we don't know if this doctor has been prescribing him drugs for so long now and he just sees him just spiraling out of control. That's kind of what I took it at. And it wasn't even like it was in a regular doctor's office. They were like just out in the open like this doctor was a friend of his maybe and he was just getting... That's what it kind of seemed like. and Some advice. It's an odd area for him to do a doctor's consultation. Because you see the at then that there's black circles under his eyes. There's all these warning signs. Doctors should have been concerned at that particular time that no sleep could lead to other problems. I yeah, thought he had a pretty it, cool job at what he was doing there with the uh, the auto industry. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. But as far as the doctor, what he might see in Edward Norton's character is somebody who's there fishing for prescriptions. And he doesn't want to give in to that. And doesn't yeah, that's, wanna... that's how I took it. It looks like he's almost in an ER. My wife, before she became a teacher, she worked in an ER. And there were people who would come in that were there strictly to fish for prescription medication. Especially Ambien's, which are sleep drugs, Xanax, and then, of course, the, the yeah. opioids. And they would do everything they could not to give them what they were looking for. And he very well could have thought that. <laughs> we don't know this, but it kind of seems like that's what our narrator, what Edward Norton's character is kind of doing. He's searching for everything. He's, He's searching for up. answers. Badly. He doesn't know what the yeah. hell's going on. I mean, the doctor could have easily just told him to take over-the-counter stuff. Around his eyes, this guy is not doing well. Now, I'm wondering if this doctor is also in one of the many cities that he is visiting, and this is not his home city that he's visiting him. I would like to know why it's set in this type of area, why it's not in an office like you're walking in the emergency room. It I looked like an ER. It looked like more. an ER, didn't it? Looked like an ER. Kinda. In my opinion, the only reason we know this character, as far as the doctor, is real, is because we get our first blink of Tyler standing alongside the doctor. We can't say that for everybody. And we also know that after watching this multiple times, that Tyler's been around for a while. When we see these blinks, that means that Tyler has part been part of his life. We see that all the way up to the uh, explosion of the condo. The only time we don't see him blinking in and out is when he's going to these support groups because he's getting the sleep that he needs. Right. So he's sleeping like a baby, and then Marla comes along and ruins all that, and guess what happens? He uh, starts seeing it again. He starts seeing it again. He starts blinking in and out again. I like how they do that with blinking him in and out. In fact, the first time you watch it, you don't realize that you're missing it. It's those repeat watches when you realize that they're cutting, especially when they talk about inserting <laughs> pornographic stuff. I love into that. I love that. Yeah. Movies. One thing I don't get about that being a projectionist at a movie theater is they said he was doing it at late at night. Here's who's bringing the their kids out to late night movies? Who's, who's bringing their kids to late movies watching kid flicks? That doesn't make any sense to me. And of course, 
the way they splice films, even in this day and age, in the even in 1999, 90s, it's not that case. But it's not that case. We're not doing that anymore, unless it's a really low budget house of well, some sort. Back then, they were still uh, some of them were still reels, barely. And, so, and it's probably not going to be a kids movie. That you know, it's first run kids movie, first run kids movie. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But so, still but funny. It, I mean, it it played out well. I thought it was very poor funny. little girls crying. But crying, I mean, it was like, yeah. what do you know? What you just saw? I mean, it's supposed to be like for a, a blink of an instant, and you had that Everyone's one like, kid and their mom that are looking at each other, like, each I other know like... what that was. <laughs> yeah, the reactions yeah. are pretty pretty hysterical. I love that uh, kid's look. That was just priceless. Let's just analyze that scene for a quick minute. Is Ed Norton's character is the narrator the one who actually? sides that job in the evening or is yes. it just a friend of yeah. his it's him that's uh peeing in the lobster bisque and, yes and you don't even yeah. want to know what he does in the the Cream alfredo mushroom. sauce yeah crazy this is the first time we get a glimpse of the alter ego where he's more anarchy he's out to do damage playful damage though at first, right it's, it starts playful. playful peeing in the bisque is probably not so playful but yeah, it's not going yeah. to kill you. It's not Project Mayhem. It's a damn the man type of thing. It's interesting how that relationship is presented. They have the same suitcase on the flight, and they're talking about what each other does for a living, and he makes soap. They're kind of polar opposites. And then we see Tyler, yeah, actually after the conversation, get up and he's like, should I give you the crotch or should I give you you know, the butt? But I don't think that played off as well as it could have been and then we see him walk all the way up in the front and disappears he doesn't make contact uh-uh. with anyone did as you, he's walking. do you see though the seats i mean there's a lot of what room. kind of pl- yeah there's a lot of room what kind of plane yeah, is that kind of room. room that's like I mean, first class first class yeah, yeah the only thing nice. i can think is it's business class yeah yeah he does fly all over he's given a passes by his work to go fly places so maybe right. he is in business class and that's what he gets but, later on from his boss when makes it look like his boss beat the crap out of him that's great <laughs> yeah and so he gets all those flight passes so he can go all over the country to set up all these fight clubs and project ma'ams and things of that nature it's given away though with his boss when he beats himself up he says i didn't know that the first time i would fight tyler it would be like that when he said that, even though I already knew because I had, the ending was already ruined for me, that's when I knew for sure that they were the same person. I didn't have to wait to the end reveal because I was already told in the office, Tyler beat him up. I was lucky enough to not have it ruined. And so then on every subsequent viewing, you try to find out the different places that there, it's alluded to. And there are subtle hints where... Certain things happen, like when the two of them are walking down the street and they're hitting the cars with baseball bats, the alarm doesn't go off when Brad Pitt hits the front of the one car. It doesn't go off until Edward Norton's character hits the front of the car with a baseball bat. There's little hints sprinkled through the entire movie that lead you to that belief. But here's the thing, even subsequent watches... Even after you've known the, the twist, you don't get the feeling that they're the same person. It's a little doubt in your mind. Right. 
That's because there's so much interaction with each character with everybody else. Because you have the narrator interacting with people. You have Tyler interacting with people. And when they're both there, one or the other is interacting. Even when they're fighting each other and people come out of the bar, it looks like both of them are talking to the people that are coming out of the bar. So the director makes you feel like they are separate people throughout the whole film. He does his best to do that. And I think he does it too much. Because at the end of the day, I don't think it's as smart as it wants to be. It's kind of like what Roger Ebert was saying in his review. There's a lot of things that are forced and a lot of liberties are being taken to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, we could dismiss this and we could dismiss that. Because we'll also get into the conversation of if other characters in this movie are real as well. We're not just talking about just Tyler being real or not. Because uh, it's convenient that a lot of the Project Mayhem people have no names. After right? a while, they Well, go that's to... part of Project Mayhem, is that they don't have names until they die. There's a lot of that, and I think that that's what kind of keeps you off balance. And that's what keeps that little tinge of doubt in your mind. I think it's a great technique. This also poses another question. So, we know that, that Edward Norton's character, because it's him, is the one that is beating himself up in the parking lot. What does it say about the other guys that come out of the bar and then want to fight him? I've been in a few fights in my life. I don't think I would go fight somebody who's voluntarily beating himself up. Right. That's nuts. And It's not uh, just that it's those two. It's how many people eventually are buying into this. I get it once people have gotten into it because then you have a group mentality. What Fight Club transforms into into Project Mayhem is a cult. When Tyler's out there with a megaphone and they're working in that garden, that's straight up Jim Jones stuff. Those guys are brainwashed. Yeah, but it goes a little too far with the, the brainwashing. I mean, we go to the point where when he's in the police station, three out of the four people that are interrogating him are part of Project Mayhem. I mean, that's just crazy that three out of the four police officers... <laughs> are committed to that. I think they go Hmm. a little bit too far with it. I'm okay with here and there, but it seemed like 90% of the world was in Project Mayhem. And And why do they want to castrate their leader? Because he told them to. This is the truly psychotic part of the, the whole movie, is that he is literally dual personalities. As one personality, he gives order about the other personality. It's an amazing storytelling device, in my opinion. So it's interesting, that Ken, that you brought up about all the different people that end up finding that are in Project Mayhem and your shock at the cops. That's the least unlikely person to be in this. There's a lot of theories that have been written about this movie, about the psychology and the sociology of this movie. But one of the things that is interesting, if you follow the thread about how things start and you have a dynamic leader that obviously that Tyler Durden is because he gets people to follow him. So when you have a dynamic leader like that, you see a progression towards fascism. The whole idea of the police force is kind of fascist in its own way. And so them being a part of Fight Club is like the least shocking thing in the movie. They would be some of the first people I would think that would be part of Project Bay. That would be part of blowing up a bunch of buildings and killing a lot of innocent people. Or as part of Fight Club and then transferring on. Look at what happened with the Gestapo. Look at what happened with the secret police. Look at what happened in Russia. 
And look what happened in China, for so to speak. This movie was played in China, but it has a completely different ending. Like, a massively different ending. And there's a reason for that. Is because this is an anti-establishment movie. If you look at the progression of what fascism is... I want to see the Chinese version now. No, it's actually pretty frightening. (laughs) Yeah? Um, I definitely want to see it. It's a movement towards fascism on one level. Now, I don't necessarily agree that Project Mayhem is fascist because there are elements of anarchy in there. And there's also some socialistic aspects to Project Mayhem. So it's a very interesting cross-section of theories and beliefs that come into this. When you have this many disenfranchised people, and this movie is playing to people who are disenfranchised, because... When Lou comes down, he represents the rich, and the rich are terrified by what they see when he goes down into the fight club. He runs away from that. None of these guys that are in the fight club or in Project Mayhem are any of the upper middle class. These are the truly disenfranchised people. I don't know if I agree with that, because we see that one guy who picks a fight with a priest or wannabe priest, he, he squirts He's the, a mechanic. The That's a, hilarious, by the right, way. But that priest later on joins Fight Club. That doesn't I'm make not... him upper crust. No, but it doesn't make him lower either in, the, in this particular case. Here's the thing, and I understand what you mean about having a person with the, the personality of Tyler's that can convince people to join him. But the problem I have with this is everybody knows that he jumps from one personality to another personality, one that tells them that what they're doing is right, and then another one that's telling them what they're doing is wrong. It's like when they're sitting in the car when driving off before the accident. Right. And he's telling them to shut up and don't talk. When do they know when to talk? Which personality is going to kick in that will allow them to talk? There's like a lot of confusion there. And even them, when they're in the car, they're like, we don't want to be in this car right now. You can see it on their faces. They, really? No, they don't, they don't want to die. Hmm. You think they want to die at that moment? Yeah, I, I think, I, I I think, think that from... those people who are following him into Project Mayhem, they are willing to die for him. You just look at what they say when they bring Bob back. Look oh, at the blind, the blind following. Maybe by that time, maybe everybody's a little crazy. But they even freaked out when they killed Bob. When they brought Bob in... They were all like, oh my goodness, they killed Bob. First of all, for vandalism, that you would actually shoot to kill. And the fact that you're able to bring Bob back after they shot him in the head. How were they able to do that? The cops were behind them. That doesn't make any sense to me either. To me, it is a little bit on the sloppy side. And they even mentioned Bob's name. They killed Bob. Even though they were not supposed to have any names, they actually mentioned his names. But I'm going to disagree with you. When those two are in the back seat and they see that he's going back and forth, I think they're a little freaked out. I don't think they're like, all right, we're going to die and this is what we signed up for. I think they're truly freaked out that something bad's going to happen. That's why they put the seatbelts on. Well, they knew that he was crazy. Exactly. They, they knew that he was, they knew what was going to happen. That he was going to get in an accident. That's my problem with this, though, is they know that he's crazy. When people follow people religiously, it's not because they think they're crazy. They think that they're brilliant. They think that the guy has everything thought out. This guy gets it, where other people don't get it. So the fact that they know he's crazy, that he's going back and forth between personalities, I just have a hard time believing that he would get so many people to be on his side. Three cops... You, you had the bus driver, you had the people at the restaurant, no matter where he went, it was like the godfather. 
Yeah, literally. Pays for nothing, right? It's like He's like a mob Tyler, boss out there. It's like what Tyler says when they take, I guess as a police commissioner, when they take him into the bathroom, he goes, right. we are everybody. And that's almost kind of like what Anonymous the, yeah, we the drive hacking, your buses, we pick up your group. garbage. Yeah. That's what Anonymous says, that we are legion, we are everyone. We could be the person sitting next to you at your work. This is not an uncommon thing, even in modern day. Well, so, even with that situation, you have people that are rejecting that. Nobody seems to be rejecting this idea. Everybody we don't that's see them. In, well, that's where my problem is. I think we need to see that and what they do to those people when they do reject it. But we're seeing it from... The narrator's point of view. We're getting a sanitized version of this from his point of view, rather than what the world is perceiving. And then his perception changes. I get that, but there's also going to be, I would think that even from his narrated view, that he's going to see people that are going to reject Tyler's Project Mayhem, and that they will need to do something with those type of people. For instance, they did it with the police chief, but I'm talking about the people that are actually inside Fight Club. To expect everybody who joins Fight Club to join into Project Mayhem is kind of silly, especially with the fact that they were very selective at first, and then all of a sudden it seems like everywhere you go... Everyone is a part Someone's of Someone's got their face not, rearranged, right? Joined, not everybody has joined Project Mayhem. And I think with any quote-unquote movement that you think, or cult, let's just take for an example, take Jim Jones. Not everybody that went to his church went to Guyana and then was killed. There were a lot of people that he lost throughout the years that fell out of the cult. Here's another aspect of this we're talking about in any movement you see people fall away. But we're so not seeing I mean, that, obviously, from Tyler's we're not, point of view. We're not necessarily seeing, or the narrator. We're not seeing that because the narrator's dealing with his own crap. He's dealing with literally a split personality disorder. So he's trying to get his own mental house in order and can't keep it together. I'm coming from a person who's watching the movie. I'm not coming at from the narrator's point of view. I'm coming in it from my own point of view. So it is going to throw me off, especially the first couple times watching it. Overall, I think this is a pretty well-made film, but I just feel like there are things that it's hard for me to like. And who knows? That house might not even be real. Who knows what's real and what isn't real? (laughs) I think the house is real. I think the house is real, too. Some of the things that happened in that house, like, for instance, at the beginning, there was a electricity problem. But now there doesn't seem to be an electricity problem when they're making all this crap. Things are just are inconsistent. The question will be asked here, is Marlo real or not? Because that's another thing that's going to drive me a little bit crazy because he's doing those sit-ups and listening to Tyler and her go at it. I don't think Marlo is real. She might be real early on, but honestly, I don't even think she exists. I think she is like a made-up protagonist in his deranged personality because one of the things that strikes me is when he's trying to get her to leave town on the bus and then he's in the building and he sees the bus pull up with all the the minions and they're carrying her over their bodies i think what really happened is the minions all came in but they didn't have a girl and then as she walks in they think that they are going to kill her all right so they bring her up there and then all of a sudden it's like oh Here she is. Everything's fine. I don't think she exists. I'll be perfectly honest. Until this past week, I never really questioned whether Marla was real. 
You never questioned it? You mean you thought she was real? I I thought she was real. But there's things that happen here that if Tyler's not real, and that's one aspect of his splintered mind, it would make sense that he would also make up another aspect the thing that caught me he mentions at the very beginning of the movie a table that's a yin yang right fincher's not the type of person to just put detail like that in without it having some meaning are tyler and marla two aspects of his personality this is where this gets real fuzzy and it gets really interesting if she's real that means that they were never having sex if he's going to the support groups did his other personality, which is Tyler, sabotage him in these support groups by splintering again and making up somebody to get him off of that track where he's actually kind of mentally healthy? He just completely goes bananas again. And like Ken, what you said towards the beginning here, that's when we start to see Tyler again is when she pops up. And takes him off of the beaten path. Here's where I would say why I might not believe she's real. I'm really torn in this. First, we don't see anybody interacting with her directly throughout the whole film. Except for the guys bringing her in. But they never. nobody actually physically has a conversation with her right. outside of the narrator. Even Tyler doesn't have, a real, doesn't have a conversation with her. When he goes and gets her at her apartment, there's no word spoken. She's like, I called you. But there's other things when she goes across the street and the cars are not really even paying attention yep. to her. And the fact that she goes to a, to the cancer one, Tusk, uh, <laughs> she doesn't have any balls that are being removed. So why is she at that particular one? I can understand all the other ones that she's going to. And then, of course, they're splitting it. They're splitting even the sickle off. cell one? The I fact mean, that the two white people went to the sickle cell uh, yeah. anemia? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, directors i sometimes think a little too cute with everything now it makes me question if she's not real what was ever real in this whole movie i want her to be real because i liked her character i liked the actress i thought some of the lines that they have are great but yeah you don't hear like i said i I think there are aspects of her that are real but i don't know if the entire character is real and that's hard to pin down because when they bring her in at the very end, they do just kind of push her into the room. Here again, right. nobody really talks to her. Exactly. But they push. They push somebody but they there. Push her. Yeah. I think that there is a person there. Even Marla has like different personalities to kind of fit the mood. There's a Marla that's really kind of like Fight Club, kind of just this chaos agent. But then towards the end of the movie there's marla that i think is possibly the real marla that is nice and is concerned about the narrator almost a completely different character right that person is probably real i was thinking about that too that maybe there is aspects of her that are real he is invested in her right and she is in his cave dreams for it's a penguin but now it's marla that's in in, her, yeah. in his dreams those dreams but are really, really messed up <laughs> right but it's a question of when is marla real and when it's not and that's really hard to pinpoint because you need her to be real at the times that we don't think she's real because he needs to get her number they need to exchange numbers when did they exchange numbers when she's walking across the street and the cars don't pay any attention to her right so right there we're thinking she's not real but we need her to be real because that's when he got her phone number. And isn't it convenient that when his condo blew up, 
that her phone number was there, yeah. just laying there. You know, well, the one thing that doesn't burn into a crisp is a phone number you wrote on a piece of paper. At the end of the day, though, that's why I think director takes liberties here is like, like you said at the end there, where they push her, like there's somebody there, like there is a Marla, but then I need to go back and figure out where Marla fits. The way he does it, he's just all this at us, and he goes, you make your decision. Because as far as I know, the director has never told us if Marla's real or not. I believe in the book, she's real. Yeah, In the book, she's well, real. Here's, here's an idea. The only other character she really brings up to anybody... The cancer... Her, yeah, her name, I believe cancer. the cancer lady was named Carol. And she tells the narrator that she died. He didn't know because he stopped going to, to the meetings and stuff. I wonder if she had cancer and she was at one of the support groups. You know, she was feeling the, the breast, so she invited him over to right. do that breasting. So she she was scared that she may have had cancer or she may have just wanted him to come over and feel her up and say, hey, do you feel anything? When she's saying, do you feel anything? Maybe she's not checking for breast cancer. She's trying to figure out his feelings. There's, yeah. But see, that's where she's actually being a nice character and not the crazy person that stops in the middle of the road and the cars, they don't hit her or anything, and she disappears behind the bus. Well, she, she, grabs, and, she grabs the food off the food truck right. for, for two people that are already dead. And now I will say this. She is talking to the police when they come to the door because she yells at him. Yeah. Is she real then? I almost want to say she's real in that instance. If she's not real, why is this all going down? Unless he is so split that he has an apartment there. He's living in that house there. He had a condo before. He's all over the place. Because we never really established how they really came about to this house that is boarded up. Has he been living there for a very long time? Is that location real? Because if you look at the house itself, it has an apartment number on it. Later on, when they say, if you have a letter, then right. it had a letter on the address. I think it had an A on it. It made me think that maybe that thing wasn't what they really thought it was. That's why I'm saying, what is real here and what's not real? Yeah, we're going by the narrator's view of the living quarters. We don't know what it right. could be. For all we know, it could be a warehouse. It's all surrounded by, what, commercial stuff, right? Right. Which On, on what is know, it, Paper Street or something? Paper Street, yeah. The reason that it is Paper Street is I never knew this until I was re doing some research, that there are a lot of like city maps that have Paper Street on them, and the reason being is because they were planned streets that just haven't received a name yet, and so they would be printed on maps as Paper Street, so which is kind of a wild so thing. So in a way, so, is, is so that it that might not exist? Because you have one house in the middle of a industrial area and the bus happens to go and drop you by that one place that late at night where is he coming from he no longer works maybe he's coming back from one of his flights or something that he doesn't realize but i mean all of a sudden this place out of nowhere has a bus stop you know maybe it's because the bus driver is part of project mayhem that could have a more logical because there is a, a factory around there so it makes sense that there would be a bus stop somewhere around there. Oh, uh, dropped him right so, out in his front or door. It's like an industrial park or whatever. There are a couple of aspects here that are rather troubling for us watching. The one aspect that was really troubling, the narrator's interaction with his boss, where the boss finds the rules to Fight Club. And then Edward Norton's character 
tells him that the person who wrote something like that might be the type of person that would come back in with an armor light rifle and go right. from death to death. This person's dangerous. People. This person may be dangerous. This was all done prior to Columbine. The movie came out after Columbine. I remember it being jarring seeing it the first time because of the the events that happened then but even like now think because the, you think of the aurora incident where that person it, i believe was exactly their job that's where my mind went when i watched it this week was because yeah. that's like a couple of years ago if memory serves right. me correctly and it's... it happens so often now there are a couple aspects of this movie that i think are I don't want to use the word prophetic. Either the writer of the book or the combined writers of the screenplay, it's like they have a finger on the pulse of where society's going. When you have a bunch of angry, disenfranchised men who feel that they've been slighted, this is what is at the root of a lot of these mass shootings that we're seeing on a present-day basis to have this movie in 1999 highlight something like this. I mean, in 1999, yeah, we, there was isolated mass shootings that we can remember. One of them in California being the McDonald's shooting. Wasn't Columbine Uh, in 99? The movie was written before and filmed before Columbine and then came out after Columbine, but it was not on the basis that we're seeing today. I mean, we hardly go a month anymore without there being some sort of mass shooting. I'm not being stereotypical, but it's men who are angry and upset. And these are the type of men that are being highlighted here in Fight Club. By no means does the movie celebrate these people. I think one of the things that the movie does is it highlights the different ways that this mentality can fester. It was a hard scene to watch it it really was and the fact that at that time he didn't know how to react to him threatening him like that mm-hmm. in this day and age you would go straight to oh PM. yeah because of what we've learned from all the stuff that you just talked about we know those are warning signs but even in nine, you know late 90s this type of behavior this is a 911 call you need to bring somebody in because this person is going to snap at that moment Is it Tyler or is it the narrator? We really don't know at this moment because there are times where the narrator seems to be doing this on his own accord, that this is not his other personality, that this is not Tyler. And then other times it's Tyler taking over. So we're kind of confused at what times Tyler is taking over and what times the narrator seems to be in control of his own life. Yeah, because there are times where the narrator comes off in lockstep with what Tyler's doing and saying. And I think as long as it stays with Fight Club, I think the narrator is fully on board with everything. And I don't think that that aspect of his personality, he understands what he's brewing in these men that are here because there are no women in Fight Club. Except Rosie O'Donnell. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, except Rosie O'Donnell. Then that's an interesting question, Ken, because at this point in time, the narrator's fully on board with everything that Fight Club represents. I think that he's just anticipating that this is how things are going to remain while not addressing the fact what Fight Club represents and is doing is allowing these anti-societal 
modes to be drilled into these people. It's very authoritarian, and the narrator buys into a lot of it. Now we find out that he's the one that's doing it. That aspect of his personality kind of buys into it and leads him to tell his boss that, you know, I'm the type of person that's going to come back with a rifle and shoot up my workplace. Tell me if this is before or after this scene. The scene where they go into the convenience store and take the clerk out back. That's after when Tyler starts giving them quote-unquote homework. The homework starts off funny enough, and that's a brilliant use of uh, Fincher. Actually, I think it's before, because if you think about it, when he gives the homework, that's when he comes into his office. Right. Say, we have to talk. But he found the, the Fight Club stuff before he goes into his office. Because after he right. goes into his office, he's never in but the But I'm thinking again. about where the convenience store thing happened. So you're saying the convenience store happened after this scene. After where his boss finds the list, the, that, the see, list if, of rules. If it was in reverse, that would make more sense to me because then the narrator would learn from Tyler how to like force somebody with threats. We know that Tyler and the narrator are the same person. Maybe that's what gives him the idea to give that homework. Because we see when he shuts the, his, his, the door to his room, the whole back of his door is filled with ID um, cards. Yeah, with yeah. ID cards yeah. of people that they did that particular thing that they did to the convenience store clerk. So I'm wondering if that gave him, him the idea to give that homework. This is where things start to go off the rails. And they start off innocent enough when they're kind of funny. Yeah, where yeah pick a they fight can... with somebody. That's, that's innocent. Right. And then they find out that it's harder to do than what they think. That's where you get the funny thing of Meatloaf in his fat suit running after the guy on the bike. <laughs> and you get the priest getting <laughs> gets hosed down with the water and he, right. he punches the guy. And it's they turn dark really fast. How about the scene that's before that? So they have the scene where the owner of the bar comes down like, what are you all doing? And he beats the crap out of Tyler. He beats the entire person laughing at first. And he eggs him on. He's like, I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. Yeah, I heard you. Oh, wait. I forgot it again. And then and it starts the bleeding point, on him. And then he starts bleeding on him. And then he automatically yeah. kind of changes his tune. I don't know why that's the case. I mean, it almost looked like a scene out of like Night of the Living Dead where the corpse jumps on you and he's got all the blood dripping all over you and trying to stop him from, like, trying to bite you. That's what it looked like to me at that particular time. But, I mean, you look at all the faces of watching him getting the tar beat out of him, but at the end, he jumps back on him and he just bleeds on him and he basically freaks out and basically says they can continue to use it. That's weird. And then after that, they're able to do the homework. But then after that, he goes to his bosses to blackmail him but he looks okay. Everything about him is fine. His face looks perfect. He didn't yeah. look like he got the crap beat out of him. Those are some of the other problems I have with this movie is sometimes when Tyler or the narrator get their crap beat out of them, very quickly do they look okay. A few days later, all the scars and all the bleeding is gone away. The only thing that stays is the mark on the hand. The only person that, that has a scar on their face in the whole thing is Leto gets the tar beat out of him and he's disfigured, but everybody else who's in this fight club looks fine after a while. This is part of the thing, too. It plays fast and loose with time. We don't know how much time goes yeah, in between don't. each thing. 
it's never alluded to. I don't think it's that time. long because of the investigation into the arson. But see, this is the condo. thing too with insomnia. When you have insomnia, time becomes relative as well. And so we don't really know how much time goes in between. But I understand what you're saying. It does seem that they recover faster than what could possibly be. Although the narrator sees the kid the next day, he's all beat up. We do get that, but the guy who owns the restaurant, like I said, I think what he represents, he represents authority. He represents the rich elite. That's why he doesn't join Fight Club. And But he's willing to beat down on somebody who is perceived to be below him. But when it comes to the fact where that person rises up and gets him in a position where the person who he's been beating up with now has the authority, he runs and goes away and says that they can continue to use that. That's the only allegory I can put onto that particular thing. Otherwise, it's it doesn't really have much meaning. Because why wouldn't that guy just join a fight club, especially his bodyguard? Why wouldn't his bodyguard join? But that's what they represent. They represent authority in the rich. They're terrified because all of this is psychological and metaphors that go into present day and through history. The rich are afraid of the poor when the poor rise up. A question for you, the narrator. If he loves Fight Club so much, why does he only go once a week? Because I guess he doesn't think that it's a thing that has popped up all over. Well, the way the Bob says, hey, yeah, I go on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. Oh, yeah, I go right. on Saturdays. It's like, wait a second. He's, Wouldn't you he be seems, there? He seems shocked, though. I don't buy into that fact that he doesn't know that fight night is more than once a week. Or maybe that part of his makeup is keeping that from him. Bob would know if he's going Tuesdays and Thursdays, one of them has to be there. They're both running it. You would think either one of them are going to be there. And most of the times that when they show Fight Club, they're both there. Bob doesn't know any when he goes to all of these different places they all have their theories of who Tyler Durden is Bob's Fight Club they've never met Tyler Durden so you're saying by now they have already had multiple ones and he's at a different location than the one that normally goes to so that's the other thing is we don't get to see that the multiple locations to much later in the movie because the narrator doesn't and here again we're Prisoners we're of the limited. narrator, yeah. We're, yeah, we're at the mercy of the narrator. And we're learning things as he's learning them. And sometimes that means to our detriment. Because Bob has a theory about Tyler Durden. And another person that he meets has a theory of Tyler Durden. He only sleeps one hour a night. He and gets reconstructive surgery these... every three months. Exactly. They yeah. have all of these weird theories about Tyler Durden. So these things start to pop up. Because people break the first two rules. And see, and this is also psychological, because by reinforcing something that you shouldn't do, if I tell you not to touch your nose, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to go touch your nose. He doesn't say it once. He says it twice to reinforce that you don't talk about Fight Club. It's a perfect psychological thing. So that's what essentially that aspect of Tyler wants him to do is wants everybody to go talk about it. And then all of a sudden these things start popping up all over the place. All reverse psychology, huh? But then they're okay of not talking about project mayhem, but project mayhem is where things go off the rails. This is where things take a very much more serious tone. And that's when you start to get into the dangerous aspects of what 
comes out of Fight Club. Except the bartender who has that metal thing around this thing. Oh, he's like in traction. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he must been... have been in a fight with Tyler before, and Tyler must have beat the crap out of him. And that's why he's got that thing you know, around his head. He's but, wearing a halo, yeah. But yeah. he gives up what everybody else won't do. And it's not even a struggle. He's like, is this a test, sir? What? Everybody else is like alluding the question and you're it's like yeah i'll tell you right off the bat which didn't make any sense to me why him out well, of all the people it, it serves two purposes it serves as a storytelling thing where we have to move the story along what is the old parable three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead <laughs> nice eventually somebody's gonna talk just look at what happened to the mob eventually somebody talked well, he talks in front and, of all the other people at that restaurant because you have the four or five guys the, in the back chatting Bob's the, name. You know, there's always going to be one person spill the beans, essentially, and won't be a complete adherent. That's one of those inevitabilities. He serves as a as a storytelling all right. tool as I got, well. I got a new rule for this podcast. Nobody talks about this podcast. I want to see our numbers go up. So I nobody to, talks nobody, about the podcast. Nobody, talk about, nobody podcast. talk about the podcast. If no. you're listening, don't talk about There's, the podcast. Don't talk about hooked on movies. But <laughs> you know, and that's one aspect of where I think this is kind of prophetic. The other thing that I thought was very interesting that the writers here have highlighted the fact and kind of predict what ended up being is the zombification of people connected to their phones. And whatever technology is there and the almost zombie-like nature that we have with our phones that we don't interact with people anymore and that further alienates people from having actual human interaction because everything's done through your phone now. After the initial, you know, you get the, the warning, the FBI warning at the beginning, if you pause it, there's another warning that's from Tyler Durden. At the very end of that particular warning, it says, get out of your house, go have human interaction with somebody else. I think that's just amazing that they were really, in 1999, able to almost foresee what was coming I don't remember right. in 1999 being aware of the fact that technology was taking us in a way that we would lose, start to lose human interaction. I, rem right. I remember 1999, I paid $150 for a DVD player. I had a Nokia phone that only oh. you could only play the worm game on. But I had a gateway personal computer and chat rooms were a big thing in the late yes. 90s and spent a lot of time in those chat rooms talking to people in different areas of right. the Chicagoland area. And I actually got Me to too. meet a few of these people, which they were kind of fun. I, I enjoyed meeting them. So he went to all these lovely support groups and things of that nature. What if he actually developed a relationship out there, like a real best friend? Maybe him and Bob went back to his place and he got to fondle his boobs for a little bit. I don't know. Or Marla and him got together and started dating. I think if any of those two things started to happen, then I think we don't see Tyler because what's going on with the narrator is his, his job. His job is stressful. He goes to wreckages of people who have been killed. I mean, the, we talk about... Decapitated, we, yeah. Right, we talk about the family. This is where the kid went through the window. Uh, you could right. tell that this guy was uh, obese because of how... The fat how, melted. The fat how melted. he melted into that, the seat. Yeah, it's like... Right, I on. mean, but it's very morbid. And, and so people, yeah. they're laughing, but he's not. I think it's taken its toll. 
And, you know, he talks to that lady on the plane about his job. And he doesn't <laughs> reveal which company he works right. for. He's revealing this to her because he needs to get it out. This job is really burning him out. It's taking the life out of him because we don't see a friend in his life. The only time he has anything close to a friend before Tyler is when he goes to the support groups and he has somebody like Bob, which he cries and he makes that little stuff he on his shirt. Have, and... he, that's how he has to have human interaction. Right. And if he does, then this totally goes away. You're 100% right. It's sad is what it is. His isolation in his job that his society tells him he has to have so he can buy the stuff from Ikea, so he can have the nice apartment, that he feels that he's isolated himself and essentially he snaps. And that's why he has these multiple personalities. But you're right. If he has a friend or somebody that he can talk to or he gets a girlfriend, he may never snap. But we also see this is in modern society, too where you have these people who are incels that lead to this angry white man syndrome again, where mm -hmm. these people do not leave their house at all, and they believe society owes them something. You won't like me when I'm angry. You get these people who then snap, and they end up at the, the scene with the him and his boss, and the it's talking about coming into work and killing people. It all depends on what you actually fall into because you have these people that are looking for something there's a reason why these guys are at the bar this is how they get their release so you right. you're trying to find your release somewhere and sometimes you find your releases in wonderful places you know with wonderful friends but then you find yourself in other places that go much, much darker because because you're accepted it's all about right. being accepted it's about finding somebody that accepts you for who you are and what you are and then from there you can be manipulated to being more than just one common thing like Fight Club is. And this is why the end of the movie is as satisfying as it is. You've hit on what I think is the primal theme of the entire movie. What you've just said is absolutely perfect. And it's why at the end of the movie, I think that character of Marla is real. is because he's found that person that he can be honest with, be one with. It does have a kind of a happy ending in that way but a little bit yeah because yeah. he still needs his yang and yang so it was tyler but now it's been replaced with marla because at first he rejects marla he even leaves her to possibly die and she tells him that she's taking all these pills and she's like it's probably just a cry for help but he right. leaves her to die <laughs> but as we see the film go on and on he actually starts to care for her. I wish they would have dove a little deeper into that. But then at the end, we get to see the replacement. The end kind of ticks me off a little bit that he shoots himself and it goes through his cheek. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's... not where it was aimed at. It was aimed straight right. up. It blows a head off of Tyler, but it, right. but it only threw your cheek off of you. I completely understand. Where we start to notice that the narrator, if there's a real person there, is when Bob dies. That's where everything kind of shifts for him. Because he did have feelings for Bob. And that's when he starts to have real feelings again. I'm glad you said that, because that, like I said, I think that's the primal theme of the entire movie. As far as the filmmaking aspects of this movie, I think that there's some really great tools that are listed here. I, I really like the use of the Dust Brothers the industrial kind of dance music. I think their music is really kind of cool. I believe that they have an aspect into the Matrix movies as well. Same thing with the Matrix movies. That if you watch the uh, Breath 
of Edwin Norton's when he's in the in the cave. You have that cold breath. It's the same breath as Leonardo DiCaprio's yeah. in Titanic. The fake sex scene with him and, right. and Marla. That's all digital. That's like what they use in the Matrix with the bullets and stuff like that. So when you mentioned right. the Matrix, I, I remembered uh, seeing something about that. Filmmaking here is really good. The only thing that makes me go is when the buildings come down because it, that looks really fake. Very yeah. CG and badly done, yes. Really badly done at the end there. Yeah. But everything leading up to there, you don't need much. You just you need to have just really good camera angles and shadows and lighting which, I mean, you go down in the basement below for the actual fight club, you feel like you're actually in a real basement. Now, when you're in the plane, Agreed. you don't feel like you're in an actual plane. For the fight club, I thought that's probably where I really feel like I'm actually in where I'm supposed to be in. I feel like the house itself, you could feel like you're actually in a really crummy place and, until the end. And I don't know what they're doing in the backyard. What are they doing in the backyard? Are they gardening? I don't I don't understand what they're Making doing. Making the sustainable garden, which is just another cult like type of a thing that's just kind of wild how that's all set up like that. Yeah, it's just <laughs> I don't know exactly what they're doing. I do like the decision that they made to not go the full anarchist cookbook and not to include real recipes for dynamite and for napalm. It's out there. Let's be perfectly honest. Yeah, you can find I, out, but in 1999, it might not be as easy to find out. So. Right. A little harder. I mean, when I was in high school, we all knew that there was one person that had the anarchist cookbook, and you always kind of stayed away from that particular person. The only really true thing is how they describe soap. That's 100% accurate. That it's just a couple of different chemistry things away from being something explosive. We sell their fat back so, to them to, uh, to make that's, money off the soap. That's Crazy. one of those wonderful things about yeah. this movie that I just absolutely love. There is the satire part of this movie that makes it endearing because we've talked about a lot of the negative aspects about what's come out of this, but there are endearing things as far as satire that they use to make the movie more palatable for for an audience and i i love that aspect that they're selling the fat back to people i think that that's amazing it's just one it's of those funny because funny they talk about consumerism here so much in this but there's so right. much that they're selling they're selling you pepsi and starbucks that's purposefully done but ironically enough when it came down to nut cutting time starbucks wouldn't pony up and let the ball run through their uh the yeah, front I saw of their that. window i was, I was yeah. questioning why it wasn't a starbucks bunch since of, we already saw a bunch of wussies mm. So, we're going to have a little fun here. In the movie, the question is always asked, who would you fight? Celebrity, living or dead? Historical figure. They're always asking those questions, giving some, some interesting answers. So, we thought we would play the game as well, too. Let's start off here with Ken. Ken, who would you fight? Let's say you can pick a celebrity, living or dead, historical figure, living or dead, or you can pick one of each. I won't go with Rosie O'Donnell because we've kind of you know, bashed her too much early. Nice. Um, historical figure. It's a good challenge I, too, right? Yeah. Historical figure would be, of course, Adolf Hitler. I would want to beat the tar out of him. You're going to go, go fight the crazy guy, huh? Yeah, hmm. I'll go and, and right. get my frustrations out on what he has done. I don't know if there's anybody in Hollywood that would want to fight. I think sometimes whenever somebody gets on their political platform for too long, I want to like take them on, but it's not anyone in particular. It's whoever basically just decides to use a mic as their platform for way too long of a period of time. Mm. 
How about you, Ted? Historical figure. I don't know. Historical figure. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to fight anybody who actually fought in a war. I'd want to fight Richard Nixon. Tricky Dick, I think huh? I could take him, yeah. That's your historical figure? Ta- uh, as far as, like, a famous person, I really just don't like Brett Favre, so I'd probably fight Brett Favre. Brett Favre? Especially if, wow. yeah, Favre, after he stole so much money. Oh, no. I, I, he deserves a beatdown. Sorry, Eric. I know That's you're a okay. fan. This is a really tough question for me. I've been sitting here racking my brain on this one. Let's play the game. Ken, Ted, who do you think would be number one on my category? I think it would be Trump. Bingo. Good call, yeah. my friend. Yeah. Donald J. Trump. That's right. I agree. I would love I... to take that asshole out so badly. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I'll tell you, Alex yep. Jones is coming pretty close up that ladder. That's another good one. That guy's that's a... another good one. But Ken, Ken took the but coup d'etat with Hitler. The thing with Alex Jones is he's hopped up on all of those supplements that he that he's always pimping. So you never know what's going to be running through his blood that could get him, you know, turn him into Bane or something, and he, he goes off. The nice thing about Trump is he, he falls uh, under celebrity and political yes. figure. So he kind of crosses both, both, both categories there. So yep. that's a double win for Eric. I will join you in that. And we'll we'll break the rule of the only one person <laughs> at a time, two people at a time, because I will join you in essentially what will end up happening. We had mentioned American History X. We will do to him what Edward Norton's character does to that guy in American History X. There you go. And if you haven't seen hey, that movie, Donald, check it out. Bite down on the curb. Yeah. Hey, and and yeah. depending on how Clerks 3 is, maybe, maybe Kevin Smith. I'm just kidding. That's just no. you. That's just you. Come on. I'm looking forward to seeing God, that. You know, actually. the reviews have actually been a little bit more positive than I thought. I mean, there's yep. one bad review that I have heard of the movie. I like and Kevin this, Smith. I'm just But kidding. this guy, but this guy who reviewed it actually thinks Clerks 2 is the best of all three of them. So I'm really not Uh-oh. holding them up there. Was, was, her, uh, was his name Michelle? No, yes. no, yeah, my no. Wife, my wife's a reviewer? Dun, dun, she has dun, her own blog all of a sudden. Well, that was a lot of fun talking about our celebrity and historical figures that we'd like to uh, do a fight club move on. I definitely got a little aggression out there. I hope you guys did, too. Let's go into our reviews of this movie. I'm very interested to see how all three of us enjoyed or did not enjoy this movie. Let's kick it off with Ken. This movie is a struggle. I I was fighting myself trying to figure out how to grade this film. And some fight ass, club type of struggle? Yeah, it's a fight. I started like just punching myself, you know, left and right, just to kind of he's try like, to. He's like A, B. I was trying to relive this movie, try to see the point of the narrator, but it didn't really work out. There's a lot of things I like about this movie, but I also think that some of it is kind of like smoke and mirrors. I go back to Roger Ebert's review, and he said they loved the first act. He thought the first act was great, but the second act was pandering and the third act is trickery. I feel like that. I feel like at the end, we're going to take all these misleads that we've done and we're all of a sudden going to reveal. And you've already revealed it. When, when he beat the crap out of himself in the office of his boss and he said that fought Tyler, then we already knew that they were one and the same person. I thought it could have been a little bit smarter when they did the reveal and they showed certain scenes with him just being himself up. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more. 
At the same time, it is entertaining. Brad Pitt does a great job. He's so entertaining. I, I wasn't a big Brad Pitt fan, you know, Legends of the Fall, things of that nature, when earlier on in his career. But he oh is Oh, my God, really... that movie is incredible. Legends of it, the Fall? That's for another podcast. Oh, my but... goodness. That's it. We're doing it next, kids. That oh, is goodness, an incredible movie. Goodness gracious. I think he is a really great actor, and I think he's perfect for this role. And I, we didn't talk about the other people that were up for this role, but I think it was Russell Crowe, I think was Ted Ed mentioned that to me before the podcast mentioned i think matt damon was considered for the narrator uh reese witherspoon possibly for marla there's some other people that could have done this but i think it's cast extremely well edward norton outside of his problems that he's had with other actors or directors or whatever in the industry he is a gifted actor he is so good at what he does and i think the combination of all three of these actors really make this film really work it could have been easily a silly movie but you buy it because of their personalities and how they work with each other i'm going to cut to the chase i'm going to give it a b minus it might be a film that i will watch again i'm not really sure if i want to do it again the only reason why i would watch it again is to see if i missed anything but to be perfectly honest with you guys i saw everything i need to see in this movie but there's a lot of debate about this movie out there in podcast land and blogs and youtube or Wherever you type in Fight Club, somebody's going to have an opinion on it, and they vary. They vary all over the place. This movie means a lot to a lot of different people in different ways. But for me, it's a B-. That's an interesting review. So for me, I saw this movie again about eight years ago. Didn't really care for it then, but I'll be honest with you. I wasn't really watching this movie in any kind of detail. Uh, Brad Pitt is one of my favorite actors of all time. I think he's incredible in, in most everything he does. This movie, though, he is equally good in, but this is a, a very different type of movie. This is one that really David Fincher makes you think on. This is one now that I wish I would have watched a second or third time, and I'm going to go back and watch it a second or third time because this is one of those movies that you really can't just watch once and think that you're getting everything out of it. You're probably going to miss a lot of stuff. This is one you need to at least watch twice, if not three times, and I'm hoping that people that are listening to this podcast have watched this movie numerous times. It's an interesting movie. I would be very curious to watch this movie maybe dropping acid or high as a kite or something like that. I think it'd be an even more incredible movie. Just totally freak you out. But sober watching this movie, it is still just a weird movie. You We're want not to say something so bad. I know you do, Ken. You want to say We're something so bad. We're not promoting acid trips on this podcast or anything speak like for that. Your, speak for yourself. You speak only for yourself. That's right. No, no Inagata de Vida on this First one. First rule of uh, podcasting is not to promote illegal drug use. <laughs> I don't know. Some of these movies we've watched, it might have been a little bit better if we dropped acid or were dead. I don't know. Clerks do. Clerks do. Assassins. Assassins. Uh, so. Maverick. Getting off topic here. All right. So it's an interesting movie. It's growing on me. My grade on this was a little lower initially before we started talking about this. And... I got to admit, I am really intrigued to watch this thing again and really look for some of the details we talked about. And as I'm kind of sitting back and analyzing this movie, I realize that it actually is a pretty good movie. I mean, David Fincher did a really great job on this. The cinematography 
is incredible. I think Brad Pitt is phenomenal in this movie. I think Ed Norton is definitely right up there. The supporting cast, I mean, Meatloaf, creepy guy in this one, but hey, it works. It really works. You never expect that character in him. It's got a lot of flaws, obviously, as a lot of movies do, but it's definitely one that I'm going to watch again just for the sheer fact that I need to catch up on some stuff on it. My review initially was probably going to be like a C plus, but I'm definitely going to amend that, and I'm going to go with Ken on this one as a, uh, a B minus. It is fluttering on a B. The ending kind of led a little bit to be desired. Let's just go with a B minus on this one. All right, Ted, what's your review of of this one? This is a movie that I thoroughly enjoy. This is another movie that we've chosen that I thoroughly enjoy our discussion about it because I think it highlights the fact that all three of us have different aspects in which we bring to the table to look at meanings and and the different aspects of the movie. I like movies that make you think. This is a a recurring theme throughout our 60-some episodes now. I don't think that this is David Fincher's best movie because my favorite David Fincher movie still is going to be Seven. But this is right there with Seven for me. It puts you in a different space. And whatever mood you're in kind of affects how you how you view the movie. It's kind of like a, a mood ring that way. And I really like that aspect of it that every time you come to it, you might get a little bit something different out of it. I love the themes of this movie, and like Ken had said, some people have written academic-level analysis of this movie. Very interesting. Some of them I don't necessarily agree with, but uh, others that I do see, and I've kind of brought a few of those up. Aspects that I would have never have thought. I also like, now that we're looking at this in 2022, man, some of the, the same themes are still extremely prevalent today. And all of that just brings into a great mix for just a great movie. And for me, and like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is a movie that I'll watch maybe once or twice a year. I just absolutely adore it. It does have some flaws, but the filmmaking is undeniable. For that reason, I do give this an A-, minus because in my opinion, like I said, 7 was an A. And I really, really like this movie. And I don't think that you could get any better than Edward Norton and Brad Pitt in this movie. These two guys, they act their butt off. I think Helen Carter should have oh, been yeah. in here more, more than she is. She's a really gifted actor, and she kind of goes against the type that she was cast before this and right. even after this because she's in a lot of those Tim Burton movies. She's married to Tim Burton. Right, but she well, she's a beautiful lady, and she's a great actress. Yes, she is. I, I really enjoyed her performances and mostly everything she's done. One thing I wanted to add on, because I was reading this uh, with Roger Ebert's review, I like what he says here at the end of his review. Fight Club is a thrill ride masquerading as philosophy, the kind of ride where some people puke and others can't wait to get on again. I just wanted to say that because I thought it was kind of interesting how he put that at the end. I think that succinctly sums up all three of our reviews in one sentence. I think so. And that's that's why Roger Ebert is the master. Well, thank you everybody for listening to uh, this edition of Hooked on Movies. Ted, tell us where they can find us on Twitter. We can be found on Twitter at hooked on underscore movies. And interact with us here on Twitter and tell us who you would like to fight 
or what you think of the movie or what you think of the different philosophical questions that come out of the movie. We'll be more than happy to interact with you. And then, of course, whatever podcast format you're listening to us on, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Good Pods, rate and review, it helps us get seen by more and more people. We would greatly, greatly appreciate that. Ken, where can they find us on Facebook? Oh, you just type in Hooked on Movies and ask to join our group, and we'll be more than happy to accept you into our commune. And we won't beat you up. There won't, won't be any credit or background There check. will be no fighting. No. There will yeah. be no fighting. There might be some gardening. Yes. No mayhem, as far as we know. If you enjoy movies and you like to talk about movies, feel free to join it. Feel free to share and have a conversation with us. We love to talk movies, or else we wouldn't be here. If we didn't like movies, we'd maybe be talking about soap and the different uses of soap, I guess. And different yep. brands of soap. Yes. I'm an ivory guy. I'm a barman myself. I'm about one of those body wash type of guys. Uh, I'm an old spice a body wash guy. guy. You're a loofah guy. Loofah. Loofah cat. Gotcha. All right. I like my ivory. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, as always, I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. See you at the movies. See you next time on Hooked on Movies. Mm-hmm.